Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. Our desire is to know what the Word of God says so we can know what to believe. We're on a truth quest, not an I'm right quest. So often we end up defending the things that we've learned or the things that we believe without asking, are they really correct? We want to rightly divide the Word of God, sola scriptura. The Bible are the scriptures are our authority and rightly dividing them. If we do that, then they will be profitable for correction, for reproof, for doctrine, that we can be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. This is our Truth Quest Q&A. We want to welcome you. If you have a question today, you can write out your question. Do me a favor, reread it a couple of times to make sure that it makes sense. Put a Q or a question mark or the word question in front of it so that I can quickly identify it off of our comments list and uh, we will take them in the order uh, that they are given. It's really good to see you guys. I hope you guys are having a great day. Uh, we have a service tonight about three hours from now. Uh, we'll be beginning our in-depth line-by-line, verse-by-verse study in the book of Philippians. We'd love to have you join us. Uh, it is a study in joy. The, the whole book of Philippians and it's not joy by based on circumstances, it's joy based on your relationship with God and doing the things that God has called you to do. Now we have our first question up, which is one that was left on our last Q&A that we were not able to get to, and that is, the it really is does, does the fig tree in the New Testament, or is the fig tree in the New Testament a type of Israel? Is the fig tree in the New Testament a type of Israel? So there's a couple places where you find Jesus referencing the fig tree. One of them, he comes to a fig tree that has no figs and he curses it. When they come back by, it's dead and they point out that he cursed it and it died. And Jesus compares them to the nation of Israel that he came to and did not have any fruit and that they would wither and die. Now we know that this only happens until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Uh, uh, Romans 8, uh, Romans 11:25. Excuse me, Romans 11:25. We also know that Jesus said that Jerusalem would be trampled, would be trampled underfoot until the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled. And so, yes, in a sense, the fig tree in the Bible is a type of Israel. However. In Luke, where you have this same passage mentioned, uh, when the question was asked, they quoted Mark and Matthew, and both of them say, take a lesson from the fig tree. When you see its branches starting to, uh, to branch forward, then know that the end is near. This generation that see these things begin to happen will not pass away until the end comes. And so people have taken that to mean Israel. Israel became a nation in 1948. Let's just take it to the extreme. People lived to be about 120 years old. Um, that means that you could have Jesus coming back in um, 2000 and, let me make sure my math's right, 2068, right? So there's still a lot of time to make sure that that's true. However, in, in Luke, he says, take a lesson from the tree, fig tree, and all of the trees. When they begin to sprout their buds, you know that summer is near. And I think he's talking about the events the events that take place around the end of the world. The, the, when all, you know, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, raging of sea, famines are all going to happen throughout history. But when they all start to happen at once, then look up for your redemption draws nigh. That's what it says in Matthew 24. And so when we see these things start to happen, a one world government, like we're seeing even today, um, other end time events, then we are to look up because it's going to happen quickly, which is what Jesus meant when he said, behold, I'm coming quickly. It meant that once it starts, it's going to radically take place and happen fast. I've seen people abuse this text on a lot of occasions. They, you know, biblical generation was supposed to be 40 years. So you've got Israel becoming a nation in 1948, 40 years from then was 1988, subtract seven years for the rapture of the church and you have 81. You have Israel coming under, um, uh, Jerusalem coming under Israeli control in 1967. You add 40 years to that and you have 2007. You subtract seven years and you've got the year 2000. People said Jesus was coming back in 2000. Jesus said, people said Jesus is coming back in 88 because of that 40 years for one of the reasons. Um, all of these are an abuse of that text. No one knows the day or the hour. 
which is a saying that means you don't know when it's going to happen. Jesus said, not even the Son of Man knows. Now, I believe that was in his humanity, but it was such a point that no one knows when it's going to happen that not even the Son of Man knew. And there are all kinds of people who claim that they know that it will happen today. Now, we have feasts, and, and Jesus fulfilled four of the feasts when he came the first time. There's three feasts that take place in the fall. You have the Feast of the Trumpets in September. So many people believe that Jesus is going to come back in September. Eh, I don't know. Maybe. But again, he comes at a time when we don't know. And he didn't say day or hour just to say you might know the second day. You might know the two-day period he's going to come, but you don't know the day or the hour. Um, it, it means you don't know when he is going to return. So um, hopefully that answers your question about the fig tree. There's a lot of abuses um, when it comes to trying to identify the fig tree as Israel and setting dates. I think the fact that Israel is part of the last days. I mean, we're living in a day when the Jews have returned to Jerusalem, when Israel is a nation again. Th th those are marks, those are signs of the last days. When you study prophecy, you see that Israel is integral with prophecy. And now we are the first generation to be alive since they were taken out of Jerusalem uh, since uh, to have Israel as a nation once again. That is significant and it's ignored way too much. And so I think there's abuses that go both ways. Good to see you guys. I see you guys logging on here, already communicating. Uh, it's good to see you. I appreciate you. Um, and I hope you guys are having a great day. If you have a question, then write the word question down and write out your question. We'll take any questions that you have about prophecy, about Christian living, about apologetics, um, about difficulties that you might find in the Bible, whatever it is that you want to ask. I'm not saying that we're going to have all the answers for those. We'll answer them to the best of our ability as we take a look at the Word of God. And I'll also look things up to come back and visit in later. All right? So um, I, I appreciate you guys. Um, I see, let's see, there's a question here from Deborah, and, and it's kind of long here. I don't think I can bring it all on the screen. Um, let's see, I would like to say that my husband and I watched live. Um, wanna thank you, um, okay. And so I think you're asking the important question for me is, could you give me insight as to what brought on your decision to take the vaccine. Not judging, just asking to know your thoughts. Thank you again. All right, Deborah. So I can't bring your question on because it's, it's just too big. Um, Facebook allows you to write a long question. Uh, but I will answer your question, Deborah, and I appreciate that. So I shared, uh, I've shared here before that I've taken, that I took the vaccine about a month and a half, two months ago. And I shared this weekend at church that I did as well. I know that a lot of people are right now having to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to take the vaccine. And I appreciate you not judging, Deborah. I, I don't want to judge people either if they decide to take it or not take it. Um, and my, my encouragement was to prayerfully make a decision. Prayerfully make a decision. It's fathom, fathomable that God doesn't want someone to take the vaccine and God wants someone else to take it. For us to think that God just has one line for one answer for each person, God knows everything. God knows the future. And God may know by someone taking the vaccine that it's going to save their life. And God might know that by someone taking the vaccine, it's going to cause them all kinds of problems. And so you want to make a prayerful decision. And I'll say that's the first thing that I did. I made a prayerful decision as to whether or not I was going to take the vaccine. Here's what I said this weekend. I was not afraid of COVID. I'm not afraid of COVID. I wasn't afraid of COVID. I don't have respiratory issues. I don't have any of the comorbidities that they talk about being problems with COVID, except for maybe age. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm 61 years old, so I am up there a little bit. Um, so that might be one of the comorbidities, but I'm, I'm not afraid of it. And one of the reasons I'm not afraid of it is because the Bible says that you're appointed once to die and then comes judgment. And if God wants me to die of COVID, then there's no way taking a vaccine is going to stop me from dying of COVID. I'm going to die of COVID. I'm going to keep that appointment. The only way that I can change my appointment is if I do something stupid, like step out in front of a semi-truck. And then God would say to me when I get to heaven, hey, you moved your appointment up. So I'm not afraid of the vaccine. I mean, I'm not afraid of COVID. And I'm not afraid of the vaccine. Remember when the vaccine was, was first 
um, when the election was taking place for, for Biden and Harris, both Biden and Harris said, we are not going to take Trump's vaccine. This is the very vaccine that they're pushing now. And so I realize, and, and if you guys don't know me, I want to be as, as non-political as I can in ministry. I don't believe that politics has the answers. I don't believe that politicians have the answers that we need. I believe, we look at Paul. Paul was arrested and in Rome and arrested by Rome and put in prison and still did the work with joy that God called him to do. And so I don't believe that it has the answers. I think Jesus Christ has the answers. So I don't want to be political, but I realize had Trump won the election, it would be the conservatives taking the vaccine and the progressives not. That's the way it would be. And so my question is, are you, are you not taking it just because you are political? And if that's your question, I don't, if that's, the, if that's what you're, that's why you're taking it, then I don't know that's, or, or not taking it. I don't know that that's a good reason. I think you should prayerfully consider whether or not you should take it. And I think that this is everyone. I've said from the beginning, they have lied to us about this pandemic. They've lied to us about COVID from the very, very start. By the way, with just this topic being in here, this video might be erased and this video might end up just being, you know, quashed. They don't share it at all. But um, I've determined I don't care about that. Um, we'll just go ahead and answer the questions that come in. Hopefully it will minister, uh, it'll minister to you, Deborah. Um, so I wasn't scared of the vaccine. I wasn't scared of COVID. I knew I would run into it sooner or later. I probably already have. And so I decided I'm going to get the vaccine. And I prayerfully decided that. And I felt good and confident about that decision. I got the vaccine. My wife got the vaccine about a week and a half later, maybe two weeks after I got the vaccine. She was not able to get it because at that time, they weren't letting you get a vaccine within 15 days of having another vaccine. And she had been vaccinated for tetanus. So, um, so uh, not for tetanus, for, um, um, well, anyway, she had had another vaccination, not tetanus. <laughs> and um, so, um, that's my thinking, Deborah. I realize a lot of people are having to make a decision. And the Bible says in Romans 14, let everyone be fully convinced in their own mind. So you prayerfully make a decision, be fully convinced in your own mind. And I'll say, don't be doing it just to be political. Don't be doing it just to be stubborn because somebody said, we're mandating you getting the vaccine. Seek God, see what, if God doesn't move your heart, God's big enough to be able to communicate to you and make a prayerful decision because God doesn't always answer you verbally. It doesn't, you know, Deborah, take, don't take, take, whatever. It does, God doesn't do that. So when you make a decision, if it's the wrong one and you begin to move forward, if you've done it prayerfully, God's big enough to change your decision. This is true with any decision that we make in life. We wanna prayerfully make decisions, especially important ones. Um, maybe even all of them. We want to prayerfully make those decisions and then seek God as we make them. This has become such a divisive thing. This has become something that is divisive even within the body of Christ. And like you said, Deborah, people judge people for taking it and not taking it. I don't. I, you know, if you want to take it, man, more power to you. If you don't want to take it, then that's fine as well. You seek God and you decide what you want to do. Um, and um, I re like I said, I realize there are people facing mandates today that could end up causing all kinds of difficulties, problems, and troubles for them um, with their job. And I'll be praying for you guys and the decisions that you have to make. I know there are a lot of people making that decision. Okay, so thank, thank you, Deborah. I really uh, appreciate your question and I hope that you are blessed. And I hope um, if you're having to make this decision, which it sounds like you are, uh, that you end up making a really solid, good decision. All right. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. We have an, a question here from John P. I'm going to bring that in, go ahead and erase this one. John, good to see you. A friend from Sunday service wanted to know, are all suicides condemned to hell? Uh, I have unfortunately done quite a few suicide funerals, John, and they're always difficult. The most difficult is the funeral, a suicide funeral of a non-believer. Believers, I mean, when we're here in this world, we can get overwhelmed. The enemy can attack. We can become discouraged. We can become down. We can 
be brokenhearted. Uh, people can get people Christians even get addicted to drugs. Um, they 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 have mental issues and mental problems. Areas that I don't know. Areas I can't see. And when someone gets so distraught that they will take their own life, which I always think is the wrong thing to do. I think it's the selfish thing to do. Let me let me qualify that. Because when you think about what you're doing to your parents or what you're doing to your spouses or your children or your loved one. And so I, I do, I think it's selfish. I think um, God, Jesus called us to lay down our lives. So as Christians, even though life may be difficult, it may be hard, it may be uh, uh, unbearable, it may be whatever, whatever it is that you're facing and going through, you are to sacrifice and to go through those things for his sake and for his glory. And so I would, of course, counsel anyone who's talking suicide to try to get them to surrender their lives completely and totally to Christ and to not do it. However, I don't know the condition of the person's heart when they committed it. I'm not God. I can't judge them. I do believe that there are those the Christians who can be so distraught that they end up taking their lives. Maybe it's something they've done. Maybe it's something they've backed themselves into a corner and they have a very real, genuine relationship with Christ. And I wish they wouldn't have done it. I wish they would have sought God, looked for the way out, humbled themselves, confessed whatever, turned, saw God move. Um, however, for your friend, John, um, no, not all suicides are condemned to hell. It's not the unforgivable sin. Uh, I do think, you know, um, if, and some people say, well, you sin and then you go, then you die and you're in the presence of God and God is certainly going to judge you when that happens. Yeah, but, but you might be doing another sin and die and be in the presence of God with another sin. We know that God is gracious and God is good. I believe when people make a genuine commitment to Christ that they are saved and, um, and that God will keep them. And so I do believe a Christian can become so distraught. Now, people will say to me, you're giving people an okay to commit suicide. I promise you I'm not. I'm not I'm not doing that. I'm just trying to be honest. I don't want to say a lie just because I think that someone might take it wrong. I want to know what the truth is and I want to I want to seek what the truth is and I don't see anything that would make me think that suicide is the unforgivable sin. It's certainly wrong. I certainly want to want to go into the presence of God. It, it certainly is selfish on every level and I, I, I feel for those who are so distraught that they get to the place that they take their own life. That's got to be horrible. It's got to be an awful thing to do and I feel badly for them, but I do not believe that they are condemned. I believe that if they have Christ that they will find themselves in the presence of God and realize there was a much, much better way to go. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate your question. Um, so many of them are thoughtful and, um, and right on the nose and um, things that we need to hear and that we need to, we need to talk about. Uh, Jeff has a question here. Jeff, um, good to see you. And if you're new here to TruthQuest Q&A, we take questions and we look at them in the light of scripture. Our desire is to know what God says so we can know what to believe. And I'll try to bring a biblical response to all of my answers. When I can't, I might give you my opinion, but I'll let you know when it is my opinion. All right, so we have a question from John. Uh, John comes to us from Facebook. John says, how would you witness to a Mormon? I found that they say they believe what other Christians believe, thanks. Thank you, Jeff. Um, yeah, so there was a time when Mormons made a distinction between themselves and Christians. And they do not believe what we believe. They believe that God, Elohim, which is a Hebrew word, El meaning God and Im being the plural, Elohim, and in the Hebrew, the plural can be used as emphasis as well. And so it can mean the God, and that's what we find it meaning. And they believe that Elohim was a man just like we are. And that he proved himself so good that he got to rule over his own world where he gets to have a bunch of spiritual babies. This is unbiblical. So much of Mormonism is unbiblical. Um, Joseph Smith made up prophecies about himself. Um, he copied parts of the, of the King James Bible 
that have mistakes in them and he copied the mistakes over uh, saying that he was um, given whatever it needed to be able to interpret the um, the plaques not to mention him marrying um, multiple women wives of other husbands which would be adultery so there's all kinds of problems but they try now to say that they are Christians that they're just like us that's what they're trying to do they're trying to get rid of the Mormon um, tagline and rebrand as LDS but we know what Mormons teach we know what they believe and so when they say I'm a Christian just like you my response to them remember you're not you want to you want to lovingly win people to Christ so you just don't want to want to dump on what someone believes you want to carefully lovingly approach them and so the way that I would share with the Mormon is to tell them respectfully you and I don't believe the same thing if, if, if what you believe you believe is true, well then so be it. You have a right to believe it. You can believe anything you want. You can believe that Mickey, believing in Mickey Mouse will get you to heaven. You can believe that. And if you want to believe in Mormonism, then I'll tell them you can. The question is, is it the truth? And you can begin to talk to them about certain things that Mormonism believes. You, you as Christians, we have this incredible accuracy of the Bible. We have the historical aspect, geographical aspect of scripture. Um, it's absolutely phenomenal that we can go all the way back to Old Testament times and see events that archeology span is proving out and has proven out. Um, that we look at New Testament letters that are written to certain places. We know that, they, that what was going on during that time happened. We've, again, we've dug up the, the city of Corinth. Uh, we've dug up the city of Ephesus. We know that it is just as it says in the book of Acts that they happened. Mormonism does not have that. It's the opposite. The Book of Mormon says that there were elephants on this continent. Uh, the Book of Mormon says that the dark-skinned Indians were the Nehi or, or the Lehi. They, they were the enemies um, and that, that um, the Indians were... Well, let me see. I'm trying to think now. They believe that the Indians were Jewish. I don't know what they believe exactly completely. Um, I know that they believe something about the Indians that, that has been disproven by DNA. And I think that that is, um, that, the, that the Indians or some of the tribes at least were Jewish. They were the lost tribes of Israel, which they're not the only group to say that. So they just don't have what we have. And so you can very lovingly and respectfully approach them. And when they say, we believe just like you are, we're Christians just like you, you can say, listen, I love you, but it's just not true. You're not, because we believe distinctly different things about Jesus. They believe that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. They believe that Jesus is the older brother of Lucifer. They try to cover that up by saying, we believe that everybody is brothers and sisters. So of course, Jesus and Lucifer are brothers, but they teach distinctly that Jesus and Lucifer were, were important spirit babies that came to this earth and they are brothers that are now at odds with each other. And um, these things obviously aren't true. They don't have any foundation in history the way Christianity does. And so I would lovingly, respectfully approach them. Um, I would do it with a lot of prayer because remember, God wants to see them saved. God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we are in a spiritual battle and we want to lay that foundation of prayer for everything that we do. And this is why this is so very important. So I would say, in all respect, you don't believe what we believe, and can we talk about it? And this means you're going to have to do your homework. You're going to have to, to look what um, Mormons believe. Uh, there are a lot of different, uh, really good um, um, resources on the internet for that. Uh, there's a video by Alan Parr and Mike Winger, and they look at six different cults together and Mormonism is one of them, and they'll give you a lot that's there. I think Alan Parr and Mike Winger both have videos on Mormonism. It's something that we'll get in the future. We've done a little bit of it, but we don't have any main videos on it now and what they believe. And, and how I'll do it is I'll do the distinct differences between Christians and Mormons and what you might be able to share to be able to let somebody know to tell them that they, um, that they are not a Christian. That's the biggest thing to show them. You aren't a Christian. If you're a Christian, you make it into heaven. 
but you've got to trust in Jesus Christ and the Jesus Christ that is in the Bible because people are going to come, the Bible says, teaching another Jesus and, and they come teaching another Jesus and so do the Jehovah Witnesses. All right. So thank you, Jeff. I appreciate your question. Again, uh, very thoughtful. I um, hope that your buddy has good opportunity to be able to um, witness and really share the love of Christ um, with those who are Mormon. Um, hopefully that will be helpful. I have, I have um, relatives, by the way, that are Mormon. I've had a lot of conversations with them and um, I understand clearly what they believe and what they believe um, that is wrong. All right, so um, we have a, a question from Psych Man. Psych Man, good to see you. Psych Man says, hello from Transylvania. Ah, no, well, hello. Uh, how obligated am I to give to anyone who asks? When people ask for money like 20 times a day here, easier at home, it happens rarely as my pastor what would you say? So you have that section of scripture where Jesus says, if anyone asks of you, then give to them. If anyone asks to borrow, then lend to them. So we want to be generous people and we want to give. Uh, the joke on, the, I taught that passage not that long ago. And the joke on that day was people asking me for my truck. I have a 2017 um, diesel, a Ram diesel Cummings truck. And people were asking me for my truck. And I said, sure, can I have my truck back? So that I would just ask back, it back, right? Because you're supposed to give to whoever asks you. So they'd have to be obligated to give it back to me um, on the same basis. I, I think that... Um, it, it, and I'm not sure what you mean by here. So where if you're, if you're in a place where there's a lot of traffic, where a lot of people are begging. Um, but what I try to do, if I find myself in a place, um, I used to take a route down to my office where there were always homeless that were on the corner. And I just started when I would go cash my paycheck or go deposit my paycheck. This is a long time ago. Um, I would get out 21s. And I would give out those those ones to people just because I wanted to be able to give to those who ask and I wanted to have compassion. And I didn't want to assume that they were doing something that's wrong. While at the same time, giving to Gospel Rescue Mission, which does a great job in ministering to the homeless here in Tucson. I'm not saying they're doing a completely sufficient job. There's other ministries that are involved and there are still people that have need, but we also give to that. So how obligated are you to give to someone who asks? I. I think fairly obligated. If you've got, you know, what you can reach out and help them with, then I think that what Jesus said obligates us. Um, we want to be generous. We want to be those who give. Uh, we, you you want to make a, a prayerful decision about it. Um, but I, I wish I had that passage in front of me uh, where Jesus says to ask and we would take a look at it. Um, maybe we'll do that in a little, a little bit later on in our study. If you guys know or you want to look it up, and then go ahead and post where that passage is. Uh, we'll pull it up on the screen and take a look at it and see what it says. All right, so you wanna be generous, you wanna give, uh, you wanna be a yes person because Jesus is. Uh, Jesus certainly says no, and so we can say no, but I think that we wanna be a yes person as much as we possibly can be. All right, so thank you very much, uh, Psych Man from Transylvania. I appreciate that. Um, we have, uh, let's see if we can get another question on here. Uh, good to see you guys. If you're new here, then consider, um, subscribing, sharing, liking, ringing the bell, uh, so that we can, um, get this out to as many people as possible. Our desire is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Barbara has a question about first Corinthians chapter seven. She says, uh, first Corinthians chapter seven, Paul says, now to the married I command you, but uh, not I, but the Lord. In verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord. Since it's Paul saying these verses um, from verse 12, how binding are these commands? So yeah, let's go ahead and go there and we will take a look at this. All right, so we'll go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter seven, and verse, we'll start in verse 10. 
And let me go ahead and put it up on the screen here so you guys can see it. Yeah. There we go. All right. Uh, so it says, uh, Now to the married I command you, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce from his wife. So that's where Jesus said, If a man divorces a woman and marries another for any other reason except for sexual immorality, then he's committed adultery. So Jesus is telling us that the marriage is binding. And you might not think it is. All kinds of people today try to make their marriage non-binding, but your marriage is binding. Uh, and if it's legal, if it's a legal marriage, then it's legally bound. And so Jesus said not to divorce. And then he went on to say here uh, that you remain unmarried or be reconciled, meaning you don't have the right to be able to go and marry someone else. So then in verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I, uh, not the Lord say, if any brother, uh, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, then let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. That's just talking about positionally, that God is moving within their lives. And so there's benefits spiritually for the person who doesn't believe if you stay with that person. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and then your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. I think meaning that they are living in a house where they are not serving God, and I think that that's the reference to unclean, but now they're holy, meaning they're living with you, and they're living under the umbrella that you have in your relationship with God. He goes on to say, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such a case, but God has called us to peace. So he's saying, if you're living with a non-believer and that non-believer says, I don't want to live with you anymore. As a, you're a Christian, I don't want to live with you. And they leave that you're to let them go and that you are free. Now, I don't believe that Paul is saying, this is my opinion, which is what your question is. Is Paul saying, this is my opinion and so you don't have to stick with it? If that were the case, then you have to go back to, if you're married, there is, there, there is no way out. Here, if the non-believer doesn't believe they can leave. Now, unfortunately, I've known people who have claimed then that a believer is a non-believer. They pass a judgment on a Christian like they're a non-believer when they confess Christ. And I think that's such a dangerous thing to do. And we don't ever want to make those kind of judgments. And um, people will do all kinds of things to justify getting out of what is a tough marriage. Hey, listen, we're not called to live an easy life. We're called to do what's right. And doing what's right is to honor our marriage, even if it's a tough or difficult marriage. And I understand that that can be hard and that can be difficult, but that is God's plan and that is God's purpose. And I think that we are bound to this. In verse 16, it says, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you save your wife? So the other benefit of staying with them if they wanna stay with you um, uh, goes along those lines. He then goes on to talk about singleness and the gift of singleness. And we won't go into all of that now, um, but there's a benefit to being single and it's a call on someone's life. And again, this is the word of God. And I think to answer your question uh, that, let me see, get back to the question. Yeah, to answer your question, Barbara, um, it's scripture. Paul's an apostle. And I don't think that Paul ever said, in my opinion. Um, I know there's another passage where he talks about women having authority where he says, I do, not let a, I, I do not have a woman have authority over a man. The word for authority there is not the normal word for authority. It's, it's a word for an, an overreach of authority. And so that would be true about anyone. He, he, what he gives us is the word of God. And I don't think that you can take that passage and somehow say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this isn't God. Remember, people stretch it all kinds of ways. People do whatever they, they want to do to be able to do what they want to do. They don't want to do what the Bible says. So they find ways to justify what they want to do. And I've seen all kinds of sin justified over the years. And that is always a problem. It's always a difficulty when people do it. And so people use that to try to justify this passage. Uh, Paul was simply saying, Christ said this. This is something Jesus told you. I tell you this. He wasn't saying this is my opinion. This is not the word of God. He was giving them direction on what they should do and shouldn't do. All right. 
I hope that's helpful, Barbara. I appreciate you. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Um, hi, Albert. How are you? Uh, so we have a question here from Albert. Uh, Albert comes to us from YouTube. Good to see you. Want to welcome you guys who are on Facebook and YouTube that are um, giving us your comments today. So Albert uh, says, hello, Pastor. I've wondered before if Solomon received eternal life after his idolatry and polygamy. Do you think the verses in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 15 give strong evidence that he indeed is saved? All right, well, let's take a look at them. So let's go to 2 Let's go to 2 Samuel. We're going to be in 2 Samuel pretty soon as a church. 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 12 through 15. So we'll start in verse 12, and I'll go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you so we can read it together, and we will take a look at it. All right? So it says here, um, when your days are fulfilled, so I take it this is God speaking to Solomon. Let me just see if I can verify that God's covenant with David all right let's go ahead and read this to see if we can figure it out when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be his father and he shall be my son if he commits iniquity I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men but my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul when I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So um, let me go ahead and get back here, Albert. Um, so yeah, this passage is, I need a little coffee to answer this one. This passage has an aspect of being a messianic passage and that God is promising that there's going to come one from the seed of David. And the immediate fulfillment is Solomon. The distant fulfillment is Jesus. And this happens all the time in scripture. This is a pattern. And um, I've done a study before where I went back and looked at that pattern of a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And we see that in prophecy over and over and over again. And that is here. And so he talks about having sins that he will forgive them. And I think that Ecclesiastes, at the end of it, when Solomon says, what is the end of these things then? Serve God when you're young. I think tells us that God did forgive him and that Solomon is going to be in heaven. That's my opinion. That's what I believe. Of course, God is the judge of all people and God's not going to go, oh, you know what, Robert? Since you believe he's going to be in heaven, I'm going to go ahead and put him in heaven. God's the one who makes the judgment in the end and God will judge him. Um, but I believe that this is good, um, a good statement for us to believe that along with Ecclesiastes. Remember Solomon, one of the richest men who ever lived, if not the richest man who ever lived, had everything that he wanted, wrote the book of um, Ecclesiastes saying that everything in life is vanity and he had searched for it all and he ended up with nothing in the end. And so, yeah, I do believe that that is evidence that he is saved to a degree as well as some other things uh, that are out there. All right, thank you, um, Albert, as always, good to see you. Hope that you are blessed. Um, we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you, good to have you here. I'm going to get a drink from the other side. Water. That's good. All right. So, sorry for the obnoxious drinking of the water and the coffee. All right. So, um, Jari says, question, the gift of tongues around, um, uh, was the gift of tongues around in the Old Testament? Thank you. How did the Holy Spirit operate then? And was Israel in the Garden of Eden? All right, so you're getting a lot of questions in there, Jari. You're sneaking around our one question limit by getting several of them in there. So let me answer your questions, all right? Of course, I'm just teasing. Um, number one, no, there were not tongues in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has a prophecy that speaks of God using other tongues to speak to his people and probably means that they are going to be taken captive eventually by the Babylonians 
They were going to listen to the babble of the, and by other tongues, God was going to speak to them. Um, it might be a reference to the gift of tongues, but probably not. He's talking about them being taken into judgment when he talks about that passage. Um, as far as I know, there's no passage in the Old Testament of speaking in tongues, unless you want to talk about Balaam speaking in English when he should have been speaking donkey, or Balaam's donkey speaking in English when he should have been speaking donkey. Okay, um, how did the Holy Spirit operate then? Okay, so um, the Holy Spirit operated by falling upon individuals. The Holy Spirit fell upon Saul, fell upon David, fell upon uh, Samuel. Judges, prophets, kings, and I think priests all had the Holy Spirit. These were the, the leaders that God gave the Holy Spirit to. Joel says the day will come when I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, meaning it's no longer going to be just for leaders, but I'm going to pour my spirit out on everyone. And so the uh, Holy Spirit did operate in the Old Testament, but operated through individuals, could be taken away from an individual as it was in the case of Saul and uh, Samson, right? Um, and then was Israel in the Garden of Eden? No. Well, I mean, in a way, I guess, uh, because Adam and Eve were there and in the loins of, of Adam were all of mankind. So in a way, Israel was in the Garden of God, but not as you think, all right? So we don't know where the Garden of God was um, and it has since been obviously destroyed and we have no idea where it's at. All right, uh, thanks Jari. I appreciate your question. Always good to see you. Um, hope that you're having a good day. We have a question from Andre. Andre says, the author of the Gospel of John, John, right, calls John the apostle, the disciple Jesus loved multiple times. John 12, 13, 33, 22, 21, 20, etc. Why was John so loved by Jesus? So thanks for your question, Andre. I appreciate it. Uh, if you are new here, we want to welcome you. We hope that you are blessed by the time that we spend answering questions, looking at them from the biblical perspective. If you have a question, then write down your question and write the word question or question mark in front of it and we'll get to it in order. Uh, so I, we have to speculate here. A little bit. John was aware of the love that Jesus had for him. John was the youngest of the disciples. John had an older brother, James. John makes reference when he's writing, not to reference himself, but to call himself the one whom Jesus loved. That was not something uncommon in their day. They would often, in ancient writings, not write of themselves or put themselves in the story. Almost like a journalist today is not supposed to be in the story. They're not supposed to make themselves part of the story. I'm not sure that journalists do a good job of that today. I think sometimes they create the problem or difficulty in order to put themselves, to insert themselves into it. So I think John was finding a way to insert himself into the story, making sure that he had a voice there. I saw these things. Um, all of these things were done so that you will believe were written so that you will believe. So he had a purpose for writing it without saying, it's me, John. That was, uh, in ancient writings, was frowned upon. People that would just put themselves into the story. So we don't find people often putting themselves in the story. We find Matthew um, doing it, but as a third person. Um, and uh, Paul doing it, uh, but he, simply says and the, the, the one whom Jesus loved. And he just had that sense that Jesus loved him. And I think that's why. Now, there are people that want to make more out of this. They want to say that John leaning back on the chest of Jesus uh, during the Last Supper, which remember they were reclining around a table. They would recline on their left arm. They had low tables. They would recline on their left arm. And to talk to the person on this side, you would either have to shift this way to talk to them or you would lean back and talk to them. You're laying down. I'm not, I'm not laying down on my side when I'm doing it. And so it seems that he just leaned back onto Jesus' chest and said, who is it, Lord, who's going to betray you? And it, it's nothing weird. Some people want to try to make the, the relationship between Jesus and John something torrid, um, but there's nothing to that. Nothing at all. Nothing can even be close to be tried to, to say something along those lines. They're just trying to find anything that they can to say to Christians to get Christians to be upset. 
So my response when someone brings up something like that to me is just to go, no, that's, that's not true. John realized how much Jesus loves him and we ought to realize how much Jesus loves us as well. Um, I don't know that their relationship was any more special than any of, any of the other disciples or relationship. But he finds a way to insert himself in as the one whom Jesus loved. All right, so thank you. I appreciate Andre. Uh, it's a good question. Thank you very much for asking it. Uh, it's good to see you guys here today. Good to see you. Um, Daniel, uh, we have a follow-up from Barbara. Um, Barbara asked the question about 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, and she says, follow-up, what does it mean to divorce people who are remarried in the Lord's statement, 1 Corinthians 7.10? What does it mean to divorce people who are remarried in 1 Corinthians 7.10. All right, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7, take a look at this, and see if I can we can figure it out together. So just let me go ahead and take a minute to pull this up. I need to, I need to find a quicker way to be able to go through these. I need something I can just type in. This uh, navigation on what I'm using to pull the scriptures up is not uh, all that friendly. Uh, so I'll go ahead and bring you in, bring the scriptures in on here and uh, we can take a look at it together. So I, of course, went to 2 Corinthians. So let me just go ahead and go. You guys can see how I, how I have to do this here. I'll go ahead and do this. Um, and here we go again. All right, I'm gonna get to 1 Corinthians, I promise. I'm gonna get there. You always feel like you have to fill in every second with talk it's not necessarily true, although you feel that way. All right, 1 Corinthians 7.10. All right, here we go. So, um, 1 Corinthians 7.10 says, um, where did I go? 1 Corinthians 10. I'm really messed up here. All right, I'm going to go one more time, and I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. I went to... 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and then I'm going to come back and go to verse 10. All right, I'm here this time for real. Okay, now to the married. I command you, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. A husband is to not divorce her wife. So I think that the question that you're asking here uh, on this passage is, let me get back to the right place here. So I think the question that you're asking is, what does it mean to remain unmarried if you're not supposed to divorce, right? Um, follow up, what does it mean to divorce people who are married um, in the Lord's statement? So yeah, so I think that what you're asking is, okay, so he says not to divorce, and then you do divorce, after he said not to divorce, that you are to remain single or, or, or be reconciled. Because of Jesus' statement in, Matthew 18, wherever it is, that if a man divorces his wife and marries another, then he commits adultery with her. So if, you, if you're married, you're not to divorce. But if you do divorce, you're to remain single or be reconciled because you're gonna commit adultery if you don't. That's the statement that he's making here, just like Jesus made it. Jesus made the statement in, a, in, in the positive, saying if you divorce and marry another, you've committed adultery. He's saying here, hey, you gotta remain single or be reconciled to the same person. Otherwise, you're gonna commit adultery because that's what Jesus said. So he's referencing what Jesus said about divorce and then he goes on to add what he, direction he would be giving them about marriage and divorce. All right, so hopefully that is helpful, Barbara. Um, I'll just clarify again, he's saying, if you divorce, because sometimes people do divorce, they're not supposed to, but they do. You say, well, what do I do if I find myself divorced and there's been no, um, there's been no adultery? Then you remain single. You say, I have, to, I have to remain single the rest of my life? Well, yeah, God asks us to do things sometimes that, that we don't wanna do. It's sacrifice, it's, it's giving to him, it's doing the things that God has called us to do, faithfully serving him and, and, and living for him. Now, if your spouse has um, marries another person 
or enters into a sexual relationship with someone, then they have broken the marriage bonds and then you would be free to remarry. And here's where it becomes very difficult. And people want to know really cut and dry. Sometimes people come and ask and say, I, I married my first husband, then I divorced him and married another person, then he divorced me, then I married a third person, then I lived with two guys, and now I'm, gonna, I'm, 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 I'm married to another guy, I want to divorce him and marry my first husband, what should I do? <laughs> and I always go, ah, I, I don't even know that I could untangle this mess. Um, and my advice to them is stay right where you are. Stay right where you are. Just don't, don't try to justify doing anything. The truth is, is that once someone gets to, begins to do that, to, to, to be, they believe their happiness is hinged on their marriage. So they divorce and they remarry and they're trying all of these things to become happy. When being satisfied and being fulfilled doesn't come from a marriage. It comes from your relationship with Christ. And that's why it's important to do what the right thing is. So hopefully that is helpful, Barbara. It's a great question and one that we should spend a lot of time talking about. Um, I want to do a full-length teaching again here pretty soon on marriage, divorce, and the Christian. I've done it in the past. I'd also like to make some smaller videos on if I'm divorced, can I remarry? Um, some hot topics where we would be able to answer <clears throat> these questions a little bit more direct. All right. So um, again, good to see you guys. Uh, we have a question here from Renee. Renee comes to us from Facebook. You can always tell who comes from Facebook because uh, they give them more space to write the comments than YouTube does, and so they write longer comments. So Renee, good to see you. Renee says, in Luke 23, 33, do you think that the criminal that went to paradise with Jesus that day is the one who was on his right hand? Because the scripture doesn't say the word hand. For uh, the one on the left of Jesus, just wondering because it's um, because isn't even right hand significant in the Bible elsewhere. Thank you, Pastor Robert, for your time. All right, Renee. Hey, I appreciate your question, and uh, it's very thoughtful. I haven't thought it through before. Let's go ahead and go there. You guys know the process I got to go through here to get to Luke chapter uh, 23. I think the biggest key here is taking my time when I do it, and then I won't have to redo it over and over again. So it's um, Luke 23, 33. Uh, and let's go ahead and bring you up on the screen here. All right. So uh, here it says, um, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, and there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right hand and the other on his left hand, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided their garments um, and the soldiers mocked him. Let me see if I can get here to um, let's see. All right, so um, you're just giving me the passage where it talks about his right hand, his left hand. One is crucified on one side and the other. Then one of the thieves asks him, um, will you remember me when you come into paradise? Both of them mock him at first. And then one rebukes the other one for mocking and then says, Will you remember me when you enter into paradise? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. Or he says, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. I don't know if you get that slight difference in the reading of where you put the comma there. Um, but um, I don't know of anything to answer your question that gives the significance of the right hand and the left hand. And if we would be reading too much into it, uh, I would have to look at other passages to see if there's, you know, um, I'm, I'm trying to think now of passages to talk about at my right hand, the, the Bible says at his right hand, there's pleasures, joys and pleasures forevermore. Um, so maybe someone makes that tie to carry that through. But is that evidence that that criminal was on his right hand side? And what does that matter in the long run? So sometimes I think that we might get just too involved in things that don't really matter. They might be interesting to look at and go, I wonder if he was on the right-hand side or the left-hand side. I think we don't know and probably should just leave it there. But I think that, hey, there are, he is God and he was nailed to the cross and there was a thief on his right-hand side. And so it's an interesting thought and uh, I think we should look into the scriptures as much as we can 
and um, I might be missing something. There might be some some passage that would make me change my mind and think that um, he was the guy that was on the right-hand side. But I don't know at this point. Thank you, Renee, for your question. I really appreciate that. If uh, you're new here, we want to welcome you. We do this every Wednesday and Saturday where we take your questions live and we look at them through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what the Bible has to say, and I try to go to as much Bible as I can to answer the questions. Um, if I can't, and I've got to give you my opinion, I'll let you know, or if I've got to look it up and come back later on, I'll let you know. But we want to welcome you, and we would love to have you um, be a part of, um, of our Q&A. So we have another follow-up question from Albert. Albert says, um, Pastor, I was wondering before if Solomon received eternal life after his idolatry and polygamy, do you believe 2 Samuel 7, 12-15 give evidence that he indeed is saved? All right, so I think I already answered that, Albert. Maybe you missed that. You can go back to pick that up. Uh, my answer was, yes, I do believe that he was saved, not only because of that passage, but because of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says, in the, what is the end then? Serve God when you're young. I believe that he repented from his idolatry and repented from his adultery um, and his polygamy and that God forgave him. Um, God seemed to overlook the polygamy for David and Solomon. God's desire was for kings not to multiply wives and they did. And Solomon did, and Solomon did a bunch of that. All right. Um, so I appreciate again your question. Uh, we have all right. We have another question here. Let me just take a look here and see. I'm not sure if we've had a question from Golden Truth yet today. So I'm going to go ahead and bring this in. Golden Truth comes to us from uh, YouTube. We're coming close to the end of our uh, Q and A together. It's good to see you guys. This will be our last question for today. I woke up from a dream yelling at King Saul. I also remembered seeing King David dancing in the background. I know you're not a dream analyst, but blessings to you, Pastor. All right, well, I'm not sure what the question would be for that. And it seems to me like you had First and Second Samuel um, on your mind. Um, specifically, yeah, you had First and Second Samuel on your mind um, while you were sleeping. And I think that King Saul probably needed to be yelled at. It seems like you started off pretty good and um, and then went on from there. So I'm just gonna take a look here and see if there's not um, one more question on here. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Uh, I wanna invite you to our service. It's two hours from now. It'll start at six o'clock. Uh, we will be starting the book of Philippians. Um, and um, we are we're, the, the study tonight is unexpected. Um, actually, I think our whole series is unexpected joy our authentic joy and we're going to be looking at what real joy is and how hey when the, the letter to the Philippians is one of Paul's prison epistles so he's in prison when he writes it uses the term joy 14 times talks about his own joy many times so that no matter what our circumstances are we can have a right relationship with God and we can be filled with all kinds of joy all right so I uh, just want to kind of take a look here. I think we've got just a couple more minutes left. Uh, if I could find a question here, uh, there's so much that goes on on these, uh, on these Q and A's anymore. It's hard just to kind of uh, make my way through all of these comments to be able to get to the questions. Um, so Matt has a question here. Um, Matt says, question, Robert, I'm in, um, yeah, where, you, where you're at. And I've been listening to the scriptures uh, for eight and nine hours a day at work, which is a real blessing to be able to do that, right? I'm starting to have a deep desire to preach. How do I get started in choosing topics, etc.? Matthew, thank you very much uh, for your question. Um, I would, I think it's, you know, I'm part of Calvary Chapel. And Calvary Chapel is teaching through the Bible. And, and I think that you should always be passage driven. I don't mind stopping and taking a topic like I'm going to talk about joy tonight in our Bible study. We're going to look at six things the Bible says about joy in our Bible study, but we're going through the first 12 verses or 11 verses in first uh, in Philippians. So I would find a book that you're interested in, find your platform to be able to start sharing and begin to do it. Begin to do the things that God's called you to do. And if you really believe that God wants you to do it, Matthew, then hey, start doing it. 
find a platform to do it. I taught Sunday school first of all, then I taught junior high. Uh, I taught junior high Sunday school, then I taught junior high, uh, taught junior high Sunday school, then I was a youth pastor at Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque back in the early 80s. And from there, I went on to become uh, the pastor, uh, founded and pastoring of uh, Calvary Chapel of Tucson. But my advice is always, if you feel like you're a teacher, then begin to use it. Use what God has given you, and I believe that God will bless you. So it's good to see you guys. Good to have you here with us. I've really enjoyed spending time with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Remember to search the scriptures to find out what the truth is, to be on a truth quest, not on I'm an I'm right quest or on an I'm happy quest, but to know what the truth is and how it is that God would want you to live today. So I appreciate seeing you guys. Bless you. May you walk close with Christ. I'm going to sign off now. We'll see you next time. We'll be back again Saturday, Lord willing, for another Truth Quest Q&A.